Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamel, Nature. In this episode, we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 5. Chapter 5 On the High Seas. I was surprised to discover what incurable landlubbers we were and the degree of comfort we both took from the continued sight of the land. We saw it disappear slowly on the morning of the 27th with distinct qualms. Our compass course was 210 degrees, that is to say 30 degrees west of south, although with a magnetic declination or variation of about 10 degrees west, our true course was nearer south-southwest. This meant that we were keeping an equal distance with Corsica and Sardinia to the east and the Balearic Islands to the west. Before leaving, I had made a study of the prevailing currents and I was expecting one of them, the not very well defined Balearic current, to carry us in a westerly direction. By now, we had eaten the last piece of sea perch and were going to have to fast again, although after having caught one, there seemed absolutely no reason why we should not catch more. For the time being, it was back to plankton and seawater, to which Jack was now perfectly resigned, so that drink presented no problem. On the 29th, two cargo boats, one Greek and the other British, the Dago, passed quite close and greeted us. This was exceptional, as both previously and from then on, most of the ships we met ignored us completely. Whether this was deliberate or because they did not see us, I cannot say, but I became increasingly convinced that it is up to the castaway to look for help rather than to rely on automatic assistance. In our case, the lack of recognition was even more baffling as ships had been advised of our expedition without food and water. I can only conclude that our low position in the water made us almost impossible to see. Shipwreck survivors must suffer from the same disability and it is up to them to draw attention to themselves. The wind freshened and veered during the evening and was heading us straight for the Balearic Islands, but we were getting terribly hungry again and had not caught another thing. It seemed as if there were no fish out to sea and we began to think of it as a watery desert. As night fell, I took the first watch. At first, everything seemed normal, but with my senses sharpened by hunger, I started hearing strange noises at about 11 o'clock. Was I the victim of some hallucination? I was a little frightened, but tried to reason things out. It was certainly no noise made by man, from whom we were now cut off except for the thoughts of our friends. The noises came from the sea around us, but it was pitch dark and impossible to see anything. I pictured dolphins and porpoises dancing a sort of saraband, doubtless in honour of our frail craft as it pursued its course. The volume of sound was so great, so compelling, and lasted so long, that astonishment and curiosity kept me awake until dawn, when it became possible to discern huge grey phantoms with a metallic iridescence all round l'heretique. Whales, I cried out, jerking Jack's sleeve violently. We counted at least ten, performing a stately and peaceable minuet round the boat. They must have been between sixty and a hundred feet long. Sometimes one of their number, swimming towards the boat, dived a few yards away, and we could still see his tail on one side when his head was well clear the other. These huge beasts seemed quiet, 
docile and full of good intentions as far as we were concerned. Jack was rather more perturbed at their presence than I was and was afraid that some brusque movement on their part might upset the dinghy. He recalled the adventure of the brothers Smith, both asleep in their yacht with the tiller lashed, who had roused a whale to fury by colliding with it and been capsized by the terrible blows of its flukes. The whales made off as day broke, but Jack promised that in future he would share my watch if necessary, as he did not share my confidence in the goodwill of our nocturnal visitors. I was delighted and did not hesitate to avail myself of his offer whenever the long hours on watch became too depressing. Nothing of consequence happened on the 30th, nor did we add anything to the larder. We were slowly getting used to our abnormal existence, and the chief question remaining was how the dinghy would behave in a storm. Would she ride it out again successfully as her smaller sister had between Boulogne and Folkestone? I believe she would, but Jack was not so sure, although he was prepared to accept the risk. In any case, it would be better to make the experiment in a stretch of sea as busy as the Mediterranean rather than 1,500 miles from the nearest coast. Towards the evening, we saw to our joy the outline of Mount Toro, the highest peak in Menorca, outlined against the setting sun. It was 72 hours since we had left the French coast. Jack had predicted our landfall at midday when, in spite of great difficulties, he had succeeded in determining our position by taking a sight of the sun at noon. This was an operation incomprehensible to me, even in normal conditions, and in those in which we found ourselves, it seemed more like a magician's trick. Jack had to coincide in his sextant the lower rim of the sun with the line of the horizon, not always easy to do from the bridge of a ship, and a miraculous performance when seated on an inflatable pontoon bouncing over the waves. Land! Menorca! he shouted. We knew for the first time the almost painful joy of the castaway when he catches his first sight of the land towards which he is steering. Even for us it was high time as we had eaten nothing but a few spoonfuls of plankton during the last two days and were racked by hunger. Our troubles, however, were by no means at an end. The coast he had sighted, which looked so near, was to take another twelve days to reach, twice as long as the period we had already spent at sea. If we had known this, I think we would have given up in despair, but instead we began making light-hearted plans for our return to life on shore. We had already worked out the wording of the telegrams we were going to send and licked our lips at the thought of our first meal in some little inn. Then, all of a sudden, the wind dropped and the sail started to shiver. We scanned the sky, which was slowly becoming overcast with clouds from the southeast, where a storm was clearly brewing. We put out the sea anchor quickly, as we were not yet experienced enough to leave such precautions until the last moment. Hauling down the sail, we covered in the dinghy completely and settled down to wait for the storm to pass. It is worth mentioning, in passing, that it is very existence was afterwards denied by the meteorological service at Monaco. Their reasoning was quite simple. Their weather charts gave no indication of a storm, therefore there cannot have been one. But the Air Atlas pilots whose route took them through it told me that they had thought of us during this period of bad weather. The squall soon arrived. We were cramped into a narrow space, knees bent, thoroughly uncomfortable, but at least safe. We could feel the waves breaking against the bow of the heretic and the water running over our heads across the tent. 
It was rather like being in a giant Ferris wheel, making great swooping movements while remaining on a horizontal plane. The heretic stuck to the water like a limpet, and I felt quite certain that nothing would ever affect its basic stability. It was even possible to write up in the logbook. All our equipment remained firmly in place, while outside the waves redoubled their fury. We hardly spoke, apart from occasional exclamations. Crouched under the tent in the cramped sleeping space, we looked at each other fatalistically. Everything was diffused with the yellow light that came through the canvas. Jack looked yellow, I looked yellow, the air itself acquired a daffodil tinge as we sat helpless amidst nature's turbulence. During this passive and exasperating interlude, we tried to guess where we were being driven by the storm. Jack covered sheets of paper with calculations of our possible drift and finally decided that we were being thrown back into the Gulf of Valencia. Picking up the pilot book, I learned that this was a dangerous area with frequent storms, usually blowing in the direction of the Gulf of Lions to the north. It was a stretch of sea we had tried to avoid at all costs, but our intentions were not binding on the unmanageable cockleshell to which we had trusted ourselves. We committed our fate to providence and tried to profit from the period of inaction by recuperating our strength. In the semi-darkness of the tent, our heated imaginations were prey to all sorts of fears. What would become of us in this fierce battle between the sea and the sky, in which we were tossed to and fro like a sheaf of straw? We counted the hours in the hope that daylight would enable us to feel like human beings again, instead of inanimate things at the mercy of the elements. The last day of May brought little relief, but although we were gradually being carried away from our destination, there was no further danger, and the 1st of June rose on a rough and confused sea and a thick fog that you could have cut with a knife. It was impossible to see the bow of the boat. As the day wore on, the fog lifted enough for us to see a large passenger liner pass about a hundred yards away, bound for Barcelona. The wind had settled in the east-north-east and we were still in danger of being driven onto the Spanish coast. We were so weak by now that we had to take turns about three times to pull into the dinghy the 25 yards of fishing line dangling uselessly in the water. At noon, Jack tried to take our position, although the pale sun was barely discernible through the low fog bank. This proved impossible, and instead he tried to calculate our drift. By his reckoning, we had been carried into the Gulf of Valencia and must be somewhere in the neighbourhood of a little group of islands called the Columbrettes, a few miles off the port itself. The day was going to seem even longer and more depressing because of our enforced inactivity. Suddenly, a strange, distant noise made us aware that something peculiar was going on. We slid out of our shelter, ready for any eventuality, only to become transfixed with astonishment. About a hundred yards from the heretic, to port, a strange white mass, intangible yet vast, appeared out of the sea like some prehistoric monster. The apparition slowly came nearer, while I feverishly loaded my underwater harpoon gun as a last desperate defence measure. Stupefied, I recognised that the beast, some eighty or a hundred feet long, was an extremely rare albino whale of a type practically unknown in the Mediterranean. Not only did we need to prove to ourselves that we had not become light-headed, but we would require some evidence if people were to believe our description. Throwing down my totally inadequate weapon, I seized the cine camera and recorded the monster's menacing approach. 
We held our breath, expecting anything to happen. I was fascinated by the beast's red eyes, but Jack watched with increasing terror each flick of its enormous flukes, which could easily have shattered the dinghy at a single blow. I tried to calm our fears by recalling the peaceable school of whales we had recently seen, but this failed to dispel the menace implicit in the slow approach of this solitary and unexpected creature. It dived underneath the dinghy and then swam round us as if to show off its astonishing snow-white skin. Then it slowly turned away and disappeared into the mist. Hardly recovered from the shock and still discussing this extraordinary apparition, we cocked our ears to a new danger. It was almost as if the whale had been the precursor of a series of trials designed to break our spirit. Barely an hour after the monster had disappeared, we heard the ululation of a siren. We both sat bolt upright. In fact, I had heard a faint sound of the same sort several times already, but so indistinctly that I had thought my hearing was probably playing tricks on me and had made no mention of it. It had occurred to me for a moment that perhaps we were not so far from land, but I saw no point in awakening vain hopes in my companion. Now, there was no further doubt. The noise, which almost drowned the sound of our voices, could only come from some man-made device, and the effort to determine its direction made us slightly hysterical. Tracing the source of a sound in a fog is terribly difficult. I was convinced that it came from the southwest, and Jack was equally sure that it came from the northwest, Completely blind as to our true position, we unfolded the chart of the Mediterranean and, forcing ourselves to be calm, tried to determine which stretch of land we might be near. Our fingers met on the same spot, the column breadth's group of islets, about ten miles south of the position Jack had estimated. Before we could gather our wits, we were assailed by the threat of imminent disaster, the sudden throb of an engine drowned the noise of the siren and every shadow in the mist became a vessel about to run us down. It seemed that nothing could prevent catastrophe. We both clutched at the first thing handy with which to signal our presence. I picked up a mess tin and hammered on it with the handle of my fish press while Jack beat another pan with its lid. We worked ourselves up into a frenzy amidst the violent cacophony of engine and siren surrounding us. Then they suddenly cut off to be followed by an almost palpable silence. We sat for a moment or two petrified and then redoubled the noise of our own makeshift fog signals. As if in answer, both engine and siren thundered out again. I felt I would go mad if this went on much longer. Trying to keep a clear head, I made an effort to determine the direction from which this all-enveloping volume of sound was coming. I counted the minutes, ten whole minutes which seemed the longest of our lives. Then the uproar ceased, as suddenly as it had begun, and at the same time we suspended our own frenzied efforts. At that moment, as if a magic wand had been waved, a sudden breeze dissipated the mist, leaving the horizon clear in every direction. There was nothing, absolutely nothing to be seen. We sat in mute stupefaction. We had not been victims of an hallucination, of that we were sure, but in our somewhat weakened condition it was quite impossible to find any logical explanation for what we had since called the mystery of the columbrettes. For the time being, we decided to try and forget this extraordinary occurrence in case it should give us nightmares. Our most immediate need was to recoup our strength. 
When we returned to the matter again, each of us tried to put forward some reasonable hypothesis. The most likely seemed that we had heard a submarine surfacing to recharge its batteries, but submarines do not carry a siren. We have never solved the mystery, and it will have to remain one of the inexplicable occurrences which castaways of all time have had to endure. Another ordeal, purely personal but no less unpleasant, awaited me. During the wild night from the 1st to the 2nd of June, I had started to feel sharp, stabbing pains in my jaw, typical of a growing abscess. It soon came to a head, due no doubt to the infection of some small cut. A diet of raw fish had probably retarded its healing, as we had noticed that the slightest scratch took days to close up, and that there was a distinct tendency for it to go septic. If it had happened to Jack, I would have not hesitated to use penicillin, but as I had cast myself in the role of guinea pig, I felt that this would be too easy a cure, and one unlikely to be at the disposal of a real castaway. The pain soon became so unbearable that, after sterilising my pocket knife in the flame of the oil lamp, I lanced the swelling, dusting the incision with one of the sulphur powders. The agony nearly sent me off my head for a moment, and Jack became seriously perturbed. But lasting relief soon came. The treatment had not been so bad after all. We still seemed to provide an attraction for whales, which added their own noises to another disturbed night. The wind continued to blow in strong gusts and the waves crashed over the dinghy's bow with unabated vigour. But through this endless volume of sound, it was possible to hear the snortings and bellowings of our giant companions. Emboldened by the night and our apparent harmlessness, they came uncomfortably close and I began to lose confidence in their benevolent intentions. I was afraid that they might underestimate their own length as they dived under the boat and would surface too soon, smashing the dinghy and probably putting an end to the pair of us. Our riding light attracted all manner of sea life. Porpoises and various species of fish jostled in its rays. Then two little green lights rose behind us out of the depths. They looked like the eyes of a cat lit up by the headlights of a car. It was a small ray, which I tried to harpoon without success. It was probably just as well as the flash is almost as salty as the sea itself and might have damaged our kidneys. What was more unfortunate was that in moving about the boat I knocked one of the oars into the sea. This was serious and we had only two and were now unable to row the dinghy. We flashed our torch over the water but the oar had disappeared. We now had to rely entirely on the wind to beach the boat. The next day, the 2nd of June, the sky had cleared, but the wind, although it had veered to the southwest, was still very strong. We were being forced inexorably into the much feared Gulf of Lions, and Jack estimated our drift at about 50 miles a day. We had eaten nothing for five days, and our hunger had become almost insupportable, even though its symptoms had changed. We no longer suffered from stomach cramps, but from increasing lassitude, an overwhelming desire to do nothing whatsoever. Photographs we took at the time show us both sunken-cheeked and tired out with bags under our eyes. My face was swollen out of shape. Neither of us wanted to do anything but sleep. I was dozing about nine o'clock in the morning when Jack, who was at the tiller, called out, Alan, Alan, a fish! I jumped up and saw another sea perch idling in our backwash between the points of the floats. He was a big fellow, weighing at least ten pounds, swimming with his snout almost on the steering oar, 
which he ducked under from time to time to scratch his back like a pig against its pen. Whatever happened, we had to catch him. My harpoon gun was loaded ready, and in a flash, I had it aimed over the stern. The instant it touched the water, the fish, in a moment of fatal curiosity, moved in to see what this new object was. I pressed the trigger, and the arrow buried itself five inches in his head, killing him instantly and tinging the sea with blood. Hoisting our prize on board, we sat there blankly for quite a while, devouring it first with our eyes. This was probably no bad thing, as it enabled our stomachs to adjust themselves again to the idea of food. Something to drink was our first requirement. As this was a good-sized fish, I decided to test the method of dorsal incisions, rather like cutting the bark of a rubber or pine tree. The fresh liquid gave us an almost voluptuous pleasure, but the flesh proved difficult to digest. Most stomachs, after all, would rebel against a diet of raw fish followed by a fast and then raw fish again, but our morale recovered at a bound. We now had food for two days. The storm was still tossing us about, but the weather was getting warmer and the outlook became distinctly more favourable. As it happened, the next three days showed little improvement. The wind continued to blow from the wrong direction and we ran out of food again. We had not advanced a single yard toward our destination, and on the morning of the fourth day, we were faced by another period of fasting. This was almost more than we could bear, and it did not seem likely that we would be able to carry on very much longer. The Mediterranean just did not seem to provide the means for survival. Several ships passed within a rumbling of engines, but none of them appeared to see us, or if they did, they made no attempt to alter course. We did not hail them, and for all we knew, it would have had no effect. However, the time was rapidly approaching when we would have to try. On the morning of the 5th of June, the 11th day of the voyage, the weather calmed down, leaving us exhausted, starving, but still confident and determined to go on in spite of it all. The first problem was to find out where we were. At noon, Jack was able to fix our position for the first time in six days. We were 150 miles north-northeast of Menorca, and the storm had driven us in a great arc. We were going to have to cross the very course we had held a few days earlier, but with typical Mediterranean moodiness, the wind now died right away. There was not a breath of air. The sea had become completely calm, a mirror broken from time to time by leaping black objects which left concentric ripples. We were surrounded by tunnyfish and porpoises, jumping in every direction. The whole sea was a well-stocked larder, and somehow or other we had to get our hands on the food in it. When I think of my efforts that morning, I have to smile. I had made up my mind that I would try and harpoon a tunnyfish, although only a starving man would try anything so bizarre. Hitting one did not present much difficulty, but my fellow underwater fishermen will appreciate only too well the problem involved in bringing in the catch. I put on my goggles, adjusted the respirator, and lowered myself into the water. I took the gun from Jack. I did not have to swim far to reach the shoal of tunnyfish. Brum! The harpoon quivered in one of the fish, but it was he who seemed to have done the catching when he set off dragging me behind him. Fortunately, even a nylon line has a breaking point and it soon parted. I swam back, empty-handed to the dinghy, and with Jack's help managed with difficulty to climb on board again, having lost only my illusions and a harpoon. It cost 
a considerable effort to hoist myself over the float and I thanked God for my companion as I would never have been able to make it alone. Our fast continued 4th of June, 5th of June, 6th of June. The days grew longer, more monotonous and even more exhausting. A small ration of seawater was our only drink and the plankton, which disgusted us more every day, was our only food. Every movement became a painful and superhuman effort. Hunger had become starvation and our acute condition became chronic. We were starting to use up our store of proteins, feeding on our last physical reserves. We did not think about it much as we were dozing or sleeping three quarters of the time. The wind was fickle, but we were making some headway in the right direction. On Friday evening, 6th of June, we made up our mind to try out our signalling apparatus. If we succeeded in stopping a boat, it would prove that we could attract its attention in case of distress, and we would also be able to send news to our families. We knew they must be worried to death, and we were afraid that they might ask for an official search to be made for us, which would have meant the end of the experiment. The Mediterranean was proving a good trial run, as we had hoped, but the question of mere survival was not paramount. In fact, this cannot be said to be a problem in the Mediterranean, where survivors must very quickly be rescued by one of the countless ships which use it. On the other hand, in a vast, lonely ocean like the Atlantic, it would become the dominating factor. Now that both crew and equipment had undergone their first test, we were in a hurry to get to Tangier or Gibraltar and start the most important part of the voyage. Jack did not want to delay this until September, as he was convinced that the hurricane season then began in the West Indies. In fact, it finishes in September and hurricanes are unknown between November and March. How he came to make this mistake, I have no idea. With all this in mind, we decided that we would stop the first ship and, if necessary, ask for a few rations. It had never occurred to us to broach our own stock of condensed foods as these were very difficult to come by and would have to be reserved for a real emergency in the Atlantic. There would have been no point in using them for day-to-day -day needs and they were only there in case we simply could not hold out any longer. Our general health was still quite good and we had not even discussed the idea of using them as the experiment would thereby have lost all sense. When at about six o'clock a vessel hove in sight on the starboard bow, we had already planned out how we would try and attack its attention. First of all, Jack set off two explosive rockets. The ship gave no sign of having seen them. I then took the heliograph, a device which works on a mirror principle, sending a beam of light into the eye of the observer and tapped out SOS in Morse. Still the ship held on its course. It seemed absolutely impossible that we should not have been sighted, but that is the only explanation, although it is almost beyond belief that no one, not even one of the passengers, should have noticed us. It held firmly on its course and disappeared over the horizon, leaving silence once again to descend on the calm sea. But if humankind was indifferent to our fate, the creatures of the sea did not abandon us. The evening closed on a strange and unforgettable sight. Just as the sun was setting, it was reflected in a thousand dancing pinpoints on the sea. As I looked out at the sparkling mirror, I realised with astonishment that it was made up of hundreds and hundreds of turtles, their shells seemingly cemented one to another, forming a solid crust on the waves. Every now and again a head would appear out of this mass, darting wicked little gargoyle's eyes at us. 
one brusque movement on my part as I tried to harpoon one of them, and the whole mass disappeared as one, like a sheet of metal oscillating into the depths. Then, night, indifferent to calm and storm alike, fell and enveloped us. Saturday, 7th of June. Day broke in torrid heat. Only the barometer falling steadily caused pessimism. Jack was still asleep. I woke him in a low voice. Jack, there's a boat about two miles away. He grabbed his rockets and fired them off. One, two, three. In spite of the explosions and the shower of sparks which lit up the dawn, the ship held on its course. It was too early for me to use a heliograph. What were we to do? Was this ship going to get away too? Does a castaway have to give up all hope of being seen? As a last resort, we had a smoke bomb, visible by day, which enveloped us in an orange cloud as soon as we threw it into the sea. We waited, each second seemingly like an hour, but as the smoke cleared, we saw that the heavy bulk of the ship had turned in our direction. To our surprise, the liner called the Sidi Farouch made no attempt to slow down. Once within hailing distance, the captain shouted from the bridge, Is there something you want? Rather as if we had stopped him to say, No, thank you very much. Please report our position and let us have a few emergency rations, we replied. The liner then stopped her engines, circled away and stopped about 500 yards off. In spite of my exhaustion, I had to use the rudder oar as a skull. We reached the side of the ship and exchanged mild conversation with the passengers and the first officer, who passed us down some food and water. Then the captain, somewhat of a martinet, appeared. Come on, come on, we have no time for experiments, he shouted. A perfect gentleman, in other words. Jack frowned, but said nothing. He had not mad a smoke for five days and was hoping at least to be offered a cigarette, but he was not going to ask for one. The first officer speeded things up, but no attempt was made to invite us on board. Then off went the city for Uch with her amiable captain. We did not know how dearly we were to pay for this meeting, or how we were to be reproached for accepting this pitiful little stock of rations. Everyone chose to forget that we had spent ten days out of fourteen without food or fresh water, and that on the other four we had had only raw sea perch and fish juice. The mere fact of accepting this minimum assistance branded us as impostors although our experiences had not differed so greatly from the survivors of Le Meduse. We had held out for a whole fortnight, and in spite of their wine and water, most of the survivors of Le Meduse were dead when they were picked up on the twelfth day. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner you can follow the link in the podcast description and there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable so at five dollars a month your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on keeps the wheels going around but if you are interested in developing your skills further then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, 
get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.